Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatives Podcast. I am your host and servant of Jesus Christ, Paladin Actual. This is another one of those wonderful midweek-ish, midweek-ish episodes in which I talk about the text that I used the sermon that I did on the previous Sunday. Today is actually Monday at the time of the recording, so the previous Sunday would have been the last Sunday in the church year, according to the one-year historic lectionary. Now, I'm actually going to be trying out the three-year lectionary for a while, so this will be the last one-year lectionary sermon that I intend to do for for at least the foreseeable future, probably at least three years. Uh, And there's a couple of reasons that I was thinking about switching over to the three-year lectionary for a bit. Um, But one of the reasons that I wanted to switch over is I wanted to give it a try. And I've spent only a few years with the one-year lectionary, and I love the one-year lectionary. It is fantastic. I love it. And I can pair it with the hymns, and I pair it with the the collects, the Dietrich collects, and all these other wonderful things. And it just works so wonderfully. I get the argument that there's good repetition in in using the one-year lectionary over and over. Um, and a lot of the people that I've talked to, a lot of the pastors who have a lot more experience and wisdom than I do, who are using the one-year lectionary, a lot of them actually started out or for a period of time were using the three-year lectionary. Now, what is a three-year lectionary? If you actually go to lcms.org forward slash worship forward slash lectionary dash series, S-E-R-I-E-S, you go on this and you scroll down and you'll have the, the, the lectionary for, for example, the year 2023 and 2024 in PDF or Word document or whatever, or the, the previous year as well. That's wonderful. Just keep scrolling down and there's actually some tabs that says about the three-year election. If you click on this, what is the three-year lectionary? And it kind of tells you some history of the three-year lectionary and specifically how the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod takes the concept of the three-year lectionary and makes it its own, some of the changes that it's made. Now, the three-year lectionary is based on uh, the Roman Catholics and their Vatican II silliness. Um, And after Vatican II silliness, there was a bunch of stuff about contemporary worship and a bunch of other things like that. And because of this, a lot of those more confessional, more traditional Lutherans look at the three-year series and they see this kind of newer collection of texts and they say, well, all of this stuff is associated with Vatican II, which is hot garbage, um, even by Roman Catholic standards. Uh, If I was a Roman Catholic, I would like the Council of Trent and I would hate Vatican II. I'm just saying. Um, (laughs) But I'm I'm not a Roman Catholic, uh, so I'm able to hate Vatican II, the Council of Vatican II, anyway for for multiple reasons, even more than the Roman Catholics, traditional ones, uh, tend to dislike it. Anyways, the three-year lectionary, a lectionary is a set of texts that are read on, on the Sundays or the days or whatever. This came out as a result of Vatican II, the Council of Vatican II. And this is this kind of hippie kumbaya, we all kind of worship the same God, everybody's climbing up the same mountain kind of thing. Um, and if you don't think that's a fair summary, okay, we go read the documents yourself. We can talk about it and fight in the comments. But it's this, it's, it's often associated with kind of contemporary worship and the Vatican, uh, Roman Catholics kind of approach to contemporary worship, their no, Novus Ordo um, kind of uh, stuff that starts in the 60s and the 70s. Um, anyways, so on this page on the lcms.org forward slash worship forward slash lectionary dash series, on this page, it talks about that's the origin kind of of the three-year lectionary. And here's what the Lutherans have done to take it and make it better, to, to use it better. And there's some different texts that are used. There's some uh, some changes that, that have been made, etc. Now, again, a lot of people, they see this connection to not just Vatican II, 
but also to the contemporary sort of side of things. Uh, and for that reason, they avoid uh, the three-year lectionary. That's one of the reasons people avoid the three-year lectionary. Another one of the reasons people avoid the three-year lectionary is because in the three-year lectionary, you don't have the same texts preached every year. There's three years. You have one set of texts one year, one set of texts the next year, one set of texts the, the following year, and then it cycles back over. Uh, every three years, it cycles through. So presumably, you only get one text every three years. And, and they would look at this and they would say, well, this hampers familiarity with the text. People look forward to, for example, I don't know, the last Sunday of the church year being about, uh, you know, the virgins and the and the, the oil and, and the lamps and stuff like that. They look forward to these texts that they hear on the same day every year. And because they repeat the same text every year, it helps them with their memory. I get that argument. And, and, and I think that there's some validity behind it, but I don't think that repeating a text once a year is enough to really say, okay, well, now that people know the text because they've heard it once a year for 20 years. I think if you really want people to know a text, they're going to have to read the Bible at home. They're going to have to be so familiar with the text that they're doing Bible studies at night, that they're reading the Bible on their own at night, that they're going through the Bible outside of just Sundays. Like, even if you did... I mean, okay, if, if you wanted to repeat a text every every couple of months, then I could say, okay, now people are familiar with it. But even hearing a text one time a year or in some in some uh, things in the lectionary, for example, the uh, the healing of the 10 lepers, that, that happens multiple times in the one-year lectionary. It happens on Thanksgiving and it happens, I don't know, a few weeks before Thanksgiving. Uh, even in cases like that, like if you have it two times a year, I don't think that's enough for people who come on Sunday if that's all the Bible hearing reading that they're getting. I don't think that's enough for them to, to be familiar with the text. So the argument that you need the one year so people are familiar with the text, I don't think that that really holds water. I think that it helps, but the foundation of being familiar with the Bible is reading the Bible on your own regularly. Not hearing a text once a year, every year, but reading it regularly. And then, you know, in addition, hearing the texts on Sunday, hearing sermons that are based on the text, not based on self-help or TED Talks or whatever nonsense goes on at COWO services. In any case, there are reasons people don't like the three-year lectionary. Uh, I understand these reasons. I think some of them are, are, are somewhat valid. That being said, a lot of the people that I know who can speak authoritatively on which is better, the, the one-year or the three-year, they can do so because they've experienced both the one-year lectionary and the three-year lectionary. And I think growing up, I did, uh, my father, uh, he's a pastor as well. He would do the three-year lectionary. So that's my familiarity with the three-year lectionary is just kind of growing up in a church. From the perspective of a, of a pastor behind the pulpit, I don't really have that much familiarity. I think I had um, fieldwork church, our, our fieldwork church, I think used the three-year lectionary. But even then, I wasn't preaching every Sunday. It was, you know, maybe once a month or uh, when the uh, when the pastor, when something happened in the congregation and, and I had to kind of step up a little bit more, it was more than once a month. But I don't really have that day-to-day, week-to-week familiar, familiarity with the three-year lectionary that so many other pastors do. So that's one of the reasons that I wanted to look into using the three-year lectionary. And I wanted to actually give it a try, at least for three years. I don't know. I mean, again, based on what other people have said, based on the history of the three-year versus the one-year lectionary, I don't expect I'll stick on it forever. But I want to give it a shot. Another one of the benefits that I can potentially see about the three-year lectionary is a selfish benefit, uh, and this is that I get to specifically study more Bible verses for the sake of preaching. Now, I try to read the Bible on my own, and I read the Bible actually most of all just to get in arguments with people on the internet, because that's what I do. Um, but there's something different when you're actually studying the text and trying to 
and trying to pull from the text, trying to exegete from the text, uh, something, something for a sermon. And it's just this beautiful, it's this wonderful thing that, uh, that I'm blessed to be able to do as a pastor. And I've only been able to do it with the one year really so far. So I would love to be able to do that with another set of texts with, you know, three times as many texts. So part of this is, is a little bit of selfishness that I, I kind of want to, <laughs> I kind of want to, kind of want to play with that toy for a little bit. I kind of want to, you know, see a couple of these texts and try to pull some sermons out of these texts as well. I want to see the comparisons between the parallel, uh, the parallels of the same kind of accounts and the same miracles and things like that. I want to really, you know, chew on more of, more of the scripture. I get that there's more familiarity with the one year, but there's more diversity with a three-year. That's kind of the trade-off. Now, why would somebody use the one-year lectionary? Obviously, we already talked about familiarity, but also there's a historical basis behind it. Now, that, that website I mentioned a few times, lcms.org, when it's uh, forward slash worship, forward slash lectionary dash series, it also talks about the one-year lectionary. It talks about uh, the historical value of the one-year lectionary. And as Lutherans, we do actually appreciate things that have come before us, not just scripture itself, but saying, look, the people who came before us, they may have they may have been onto something when it came to organizing texts for a single church year. They may have been onto something, and there's something beautiful about having uh, having these texts in common with the historic Christian church. Now, again, the counter argument to that from the three year is that so many churches currently use a three year lectionary, Rome included, but a lot of Lutheran churches as well use a three year lectionary. So all of these contemporary worship services, like and Roman services. If they're all using the three-year, then we are, then we are preaching alongside our brothers in the faith, in the Christian faith, uh, by also using the three-year. By using the one-year, we're preaching alongside our brothers in the Christian faith, particularly those historically, because the one-year is more ancient. Now, again, on the website, it talks about there's, uh, um, the, you know, the value of repetition. Let me see. Um, there's older resources, older hymns and sermons by Luther's. If you go through Luther's uh, house postles, I believe Brian Wolfmiller, who I think it's wolfmiller.co, he's got his website. He's got recordings of a bunch of Luther house postles, and those were extremely helpful to me to listen to some sermons. I mean, there's one thing to read a sermon. It's another thing to hear it. Um, to listen to some of Martin Luther's sermons on the text. So it was wonderful to be able to preach on the same texts that Martin Luther used and to be able to say, hey, I want to use that same sort of illustration. I want to make that same sort of connection or, oh, this is interesting. I want to go a little bit different direction with that. So the history behind the one year is definitely, definitely something that appeals to me and many other, many other conservative Lutheran pastors. In any case, I'm going to be trying out the three-year lectionary. This is going to be the last the last, this last Sunday is going to be the last uh, Sunday, probably for a while, that I've used the one-year lectionary. Um, this is also going to allow me to be more familiar with some of the resources available for the three-year lectionary. There's some kind of, uh, there's musical resources and there's kind of printed resources as well. This is not me necessarily saying, okay, well, the three-year lectionary is better, or that the resources for the three-year lectionary are better. This is me saying, I'll give it a shot. And uh, somebody pointed this out. I'm going to make the comparison as well. There are different youth conferences, for example. There's the Higher Things Youth Conference, and this is often known as kind of, this is where you have the more traditional worship services and the hymns and all these other things. Uh, and then you've got the um, National Youth Gathering, which I went to for the first, I, haven't, I hadn't gone to either of them. And I went to the National Youth Gathering, I think last year, or maybe it was the year before, whichever it was, I think it was last year. And this is the first time I ever went to the National Youth Gathering and I recorded kind of my observation. So I was able to see firsthand what the National Youth Gathering is. And it was a lot more contemporary worship and there were a lot of other things that I would have done differently there. But there was also a lot of beauty there that I wasn't able to see from the outside. But having gone to it, I could say, okay, 
Now I can tell you what the National Youth Gathering is like. And I can tell you from experience. And I can tell you, you know, there's all these details that I haven't communicated. And you can say, hey, what was it like to, you know, to see here? And how did they do communion? And I could say, oh, yeah, I remember that. Rather than, you know, trying to recall from somebody else's blog post or recording or whatever about the National Youth Gathering. I can say, I was there. I can tell you all kinds of details. Likewise, this year I'll be going to Higher Things, hopefully, uh, and I'll be able to say, okay, this is what I experienced at, at Higher Things. Uh, and this is what I liked, this is what I didn't like, this is what I would have done differently, you know, etc. Et, et um, so if Higher Things is the one-year lectionary and, I, and, and I'm going to experience that this year, and, you know, the National Youth Gathering is a three-year lectionary and I experienced that last year, I'm going to do the same thing with, with these readings. I've experienced the, the one-year lectionary for a few years. The first year... When I was in the parish, I preached exclusively on the Gospels. I did this on purpose. Uh, I said, I'm going to preach on the Gospel for, for every single one. And I think the, the second year I preached on, I don't think it was so, so strict. I wanted to try to preach on the Epistles, but I ended up you know, doing the Epistles and then doing the Old Testament and kind of jumping around, but not focusing on, on the Gospel the second, the second time through. Then the third time through, uh, I, I just kind of was like, all right, you know, I'm going to read all the texts and I'm going to figure it out <laughs> Sunday by Sunday without any sort of structure as to which text I'm going to preach on. In any case, it should be interesting to kind of, uh, to kind of experience the three-year lectionary firsthand. Um, it's okay if I get haters for this. Uh, I, I know a lot of, a lot of conservative uh, theologians are really, really strict about the one-year lectionary. And that's good. And that's wonderful. And um, I suppose uh, they can always post physique if they want to if they want to square up about me using the three year lectionary, because at the end of the day, I'm going to be reading God's word. I'm going to be reading the Bible and I'm going to get to preach on God's word. And that is fantastic. That is wonderful. And I'm really looking forward to it. In any case, because this is the midweek ish, midweek ish episode, even though I've been ranting about the one and the three year lectionary for a bit. Um, I'm going to include at the end of this episode, I'm going to include the audio from my sermon this last Sunday. It is about, um, it's about Jesus's parable of the 10 virgins. Before I do that, I'm going to read the text, Matthew 25 verses one through 13. This is a text that the sermon was based on. This is an ESV. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But around midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgin rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, rather go to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. So this is the text that I base it on. Um, the sermon, for the most part, I kind of wanted to run with this theme of of the oil. And I, there's different explanations for the oil. And I like this idea of the oil be, being faith and, and faith being used just like you burn oil. Uh, when you, when you burn your faith, when you use your faith, when you put it to its intended use, it shines like a light, but it, it gets used up. It's fuel. It gets used up. So it needs to be replenished constantly. Now I went in that direction with the sermon and you can listen to the sermon afterwards as usual. It's not a particularly long sermon. 
But one of the ideas that I had that I didn't really get into was I wanted to get into this idea of kind of being prepared for times of spiritual drought. I didn't, I mean, I mentioned it a little bit in the sermon, but, but I never really focused on it. Uh, and I was just thinking about like, you preparing, preparing your kids before they go to college. And then presumably they go to college and you lose all contact with them and they send you a, a, a message asking for money, you know, once a month or whatever, and they're not going to church and they're just living in, in, just, in just dorm rooms and filth and pizza boxes and whatever. And then they're doing this for months or years. Or, you know, they go to the military and <laughs> it's kind of the same experience in the military. It's just, it's just kind of organized chaos. But there's not really a lot of Christian formation. And this idea that I wanted to get into, but I ended up not for the sermon, is, is being prepared kind of spiritual formation-wise in terms of, you know, you raise the child up in the right way and they will not depart from it. And, and how you can train your children and how you can teach your children and have them prepared for, prepared for these times that they inevitably will be without, uh, they won't be surrounded by Christians. Now, I've got some young children myself, and it's pretty easy to surround them with Christian influences if that is just me and my family, and I take them to church, uh, and I take them to a Christian school and stuff like that. But sooner or later, they're going to be more and more independent. They're not going to be surrounded by just, you know, mommy and daddy and, and grandpa and, and, you know, all these, these Christians that go to their church. At some point, they're going to have more influences in, in their life. And my thought is, how do you prepare a person for that situation? How do you prepare a person to not just enter the spiritual desert, but the spiritual wilderness where they're beset on all sides by people who are actively hostile to God's word and to the gospel. How do you prepare somebody for that where they're going to be attacked for their beliefs and called just kind of the most horrible things or their beliefs are going to be ridiculed and laughed at and stuff? And I've talked to some people before about this and they talk about, you know, well, you don't want your kids to be raised in a bubble and you don't want to, you want to prepare them for the real world. And, and the way to do that is not exposure therapy. It's not, you just throw them into the lion's den or the pit and, and be like, here's all this sin that you could ever want. And you're going to experience it as a five-year-old, um, just because you may experience it later on as a 16-year-old. Like, that's not what you do. You don't just give up on being a parent and just say, well, I'm going to let my kid do whatever he wants to. There has to be some sort of formation process in being a parent. But there's also a balance where you say, okay, look, you are a Christian, you are surrounded by Christians, you're in a Christian household, and, and every perspective you're going to get from me is going to be a Christian perspective. That being said, there are people in the world who are going to challenge it, and they're going to challenge the Christian perspective on these points. And I think that that's really the foundation of, of kind of building up somebody, and I guess I was going to talk about building up their oil reserves, and you know, their, their reserves of faith, their ability to deal with adversity and, and con controversy over Scripture is you kind of, you, you prepare them, you say, look, you're going to encounter these people who are going to say, well, science says the earth is X million billion years old and that the Bible is silly and that every, you know, evolution and, you know, this social issue or that political topic or, you know, Christian crusades murdered everybody and wars are always started by Christians and religion is the opium of the masses. And, and so there is a way that you can kind of prepare your, prepare your children, prepare your loved ones and your family for, I mean, you don't have to be a child to have to prepare for these things, but to prepare for these sort of these sort of attacks on the faith. Expect that they're gonna they're gonna come, but be familiar with them. Now, in this parable, Jesus talks about two groups of women. One had enough oil to fulfill their responsibilities; the other were not prepared. The first group went on with the marriage procession and ended up at the wedding feast, while the second group was barred from entry. 
Now, the job of these virgins was to carry these, carry these lamps to light the way, because it was, I mean, this was back before electricity, uh, well, before electricity was used in light bulbs, you know what I mean. This was before electric lighted streets, you would have dark streets, and how do you light the streets at night? Well, you carry torches or you carry lamps. So for a wedding procession at midnight, you would have a bunch of these, a bunch of these ladies would have lamps that they would carry, and the entire procession would revolve around them carrying these lamps so they don't stumble and fall over and, and trip in the street. All these things. If they did not have the lights, then you couldn't proceed down the street and you ruined the whole, the whole wedding was ruined if you didn't have the lights. So these, these women, these virgins had very important jobs in keeping their lamps lit for the procession. Not just, oh, I see there's a procession going, let me turn out my lamp. No, you had to carry the light with you. This was an important job. It was part, it was an integral part of the wedding procession. In any case, the first group went on with the marriage procession and ended up at the wedding feast, and the second group was barred from entry. Now, the general theme seems clear enough that it is possible to either be prepared or to be unprepared for the return of Christ, that those who are prepared will go to heaven and the new earth, and those who do not have what is required will not. Now, because of this, it seems that the oil being talked about in this parable is faith, because we know that we are saved by faith. So if you have faith, you go on to heaven. If you don't have faith, you don't. Another interpretation says that the oil is the Holy Spirit. Again, similar sort of concept, something to that effect. Now, specifically, what each part of the parable means is debated among commentators. And the reason for this is that there are just so many options that fit so well. Could the oil mean faith? Could it mean trust? Could it mean the Holy Spirit? Could it mean these things? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely could mean these things. But there's one particular thing that stuck in my head, and it was this idea of being prepared being prepared of having enough of the oil, whatever that is, having enough of the oil to last until the return of Christ. Now, one commentator I read talked about the oil being faith. And faith, the oil, is put into a lamp and then burned. It is used. That's how you use the oil in a lamp, is you burn it. You don't just stick it in the lamp. It doesn't just lie dormant in the lamp. You actually have to, it actually is used. Faith, likewise, is not dormant. It doesn't just sit around to be hoarded like, I've got all this faith, let me just go hide up in a monastery up on a mountain somewhere and keep it to myself. But rather the goal of faith is to use that faith, for that faith to be active and alive, to let the light of that faith shine around you. So a Christian goes through life with their faith fueling their behavior. The oil, the faith, fuels the behavior of the Christian. The light of Christ shines through you as you interact with the world. Your faith saves you, but it doesn't just sit there doing nothing. It's active. You don't just say, well, I'm saved by faith, so let me just go sit on a rock until Christ returns. I'm saved by faith, thanks be to God, let me go love my neighbor. It is active. It works. It shines like a light. Now, this understanding of the oil makes sense. I like it. The next question is, does the oil run out? And if so, how do you keep the oil topped off? If you're constantly burning the oil, if you're constantly burning the fuel, eventually it's going to run out unless you keep filling it back up. Now, there are examples in the Bible of the prophets and even Jesus himself becoming exhausted in his work and needing to rest. Now, this is not to say that Christ ever ran out of faith, but rather acting out your faith if you have a faith that is burning and shining brightly, acting out your faith does take a spiritual toll on you after a time. 
you are actually doing something, and when you do stuff, you get tired. It is good to recover so you can continue shining that faith. You can continue shining that light. So what did Jesus do when he was spiritually tired? Well, one example, he went away to a quiet place to pray. Likewise, prophets like Elijah were fed and comforted by God's word. They would be running, oh, the world is out to get me, and I'm the last of the prophets, and everybody else has been killed, and Jezebel is on my heels, and all these other things, and God speaks to them and comforts them and fills them up so they can keep on running. So prayer and God's word are definitely things that we can use to help restore the oil of our faith as a Christian. What else can we do? Well, one additional blessing we've been given as Christians is the Lord's Supper. With the Lord's Supper, we are literally fed bread and wine, as well as the actual word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, in the body and the blood. We are actually fed the word. God gives us the word. This is another way that God promises to feed our faith and to keep us strong. But why can't we just stockpile the faith? Why can't, why can't we just read the Bible cover to cover in one sitting, pray a thousand prayers, the round of the Lord's Supper between each iteration of the prayer. A thousand prayers, a thousand rounds of the Lord's Supper, and every chapter in the Bible, start to finish, take you about a week maybe, maybe a couple days, then you're done, right? You've stockpiled your faith for the year, for the rest of your life, who knows? Why can't we just stockpile a ton of faith? Well, can you do the same thing at Golden Corral? Can you do the same thing at my favorite buffet, Walk and Roll. Can you do the same thing at your favorite buffet, Hometown Buffet or whatever other buffets are out there? Can you, can you go and do this with normal food? Can you sit down at a buffet and then just eat, just, just gorge yourself and then go a month without eating? How, no matter how much you eat, how long after a buffet until you're hungry again? For me, it's the next meal. For normal people, you, you might be stuffed for a day, maybe a day and a half. What about three days later? You're gonna, your, your stomach's going to be rumbling if you're not constantly eating. Can you, like a camel, drink gallons of water and then go days, weeks without another drink? Well, no, God didn't make you like a camel. God didn't make you like a grain silo to just hoard all of the food you need for the year. He made you as a vessel as a little lamp that can only hold so much, a vessel for the Holy Spirit designed specifically to be used, to continue to return to him, to be filled up over and over and over again. God designed you to be hungry, to eat over and over and over, not to stockpile food, not to stockpile water, not to stockpile faith, but to return to the spiritual food just as you return to actual physical food. God doesn't want you to strap a giant vat of oil on your back and then send you on your way without ever seeing you again. Good luck, Christian. You've read the Bible. That's all you get. Go into the world. That's not what he wants. He wants you to continue to burn the oil of faith, to use your faith to shine as a light around, uh, to, uh, to use your faith to shine as a light to those around you and to return to him again and again. So he can care for you regularly. So he can check up on you regularly. So he can feed you regularly. <clears throat> Here's the thing. God loves you. God loves you. That shouldn't be a shocking statement. God loves you and he loves to interact with you. He loves to hear your prayers. He loves to answer your prayers. 
He loves for you to hear his word. He loves to see you at the table. He loves to see you receive comfort from these things regularly, again and again. This is a limitation we have to keep in our mind for ourselves as well. It isn't a good idea to say, well, I prayed a bunch. Let's see how long I can go without praying or reading the Bible. Let's see how long I can go without a spiritual day of rest. Let's see how long I can go without fellowship with other Christians. That's not what God designed you for. Now, tragically, there are some cases where people can't receive communion, where people can't go to church, where they can't meet together, where they don't have access to a Bible. Now, for them, it's harder to refill their jars of oil, harder for them to feed their faith. For us, we have the ability currently to be spiritually fed on a regular basis. We should take advantage of it whenever we can. We don't know the next time we might be prevented from attending a church. Now, a few years back, I was talking about this this morning, a few years back, the government threatened to prevent churches from meeting, to prevent church attendance. And in some countries, the government actually managed to do that, saying you cannot meet together with other Christians. You can't. For military members, being deployed often means you don't have a chaplain. You don't have a church. Now, I know us chaplains are supposed to be everywhere at once, but there's about one chaplain, if you're lucky, one chaplain to every 2,000 soldiers, if you're lucky. And even then, is it a good chaplain? You're really rolling the dice. And it's probably not your denomination. It might not even be a Christian chaplain. Here you go, you 2,000 soldiers, you get a Buddhist. Oh, none of you are Buddhist? Not my problem. <laughs> Chaplain's a chaplain as far as the government is concerned. So for military members, if you go on deployment, this often means you don't have a church. You have nowhere to attend. You have no appropriate chaplain to give you communion. How about this for students who go off to college? They may not look for a church nearby to attend. They might find social events, parties, sports, obligations, and schoolwork too important to make time for church, to make time for prayer or fellowship or reading the scripture. They might, students in college might go months or even years surrounded by unbelievers teachers, professors, and students without rest. And even if you're magically uh, able to avoid every situation like this, every situation of spiritual drought, spiritual desert, anyone going through difficult times, difficult times, difficult times of health, difficult relationships, finances, difficult family situations, anyone going through any of these things knows that stress can burn spiritual resilience quickly. It can burn through that oil extra quickly. This is why it is important to take advantage of the opportunities we have to be spiritually fed, to develop in ourselves and our children the habit of returning to Christ again and again, to have our faith topped off again and again. In Jesus' parable, those wise virgins had enough oil to last the night, the dark times, and to keep going. The foolish virgins didn't prepare for the possibility of running out. Even if they had faith, they didn't feed it. They didn't top it off. They didn't replenish their reserves when they had time. And by the time it had run out, it was too late. Now, this is a terrifying concept that it is possible for a person's faith to be so starved, to be so strangled like a plant in shallow soil that it dries up. But more than that, it should be a comforting reminder that God has given us so many ways to keep our oil flasks full. So many ways to fill up our spiritual oil. 
Now, if you've neglected the opportunities God has given you to have your faith fed, repent. However foolishly you've acted in the past of neglecting the gifts of God, they're here for you today in Scripture, in fellowship with one another, in our prayers, and in the Lord's Supper, of course. They're here for you every Lord's Day. This is one of, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why it's so important to have the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. If God is feeding us, we want to be fed regularly, not a buffet and then we never see him for a month. Imagine if you had that sort of relationship with your loved ones. If we do the children, if you said, okay, I fed you, get out of the house for a month. I don't want to see you for a month. No, that's not how God loves you. He says, I want to see you next Sunday too. And every Sunday after that, at every festival, at every chance I get, I want to see you. It's seeing our loved ones again and again. It's seeing God who loves us again and again. So he can feed us again and again and again. As a trope, I know. You go to Grandma's house and she always says, oh, you're not eating enough. <laughs> Have some more cookies. And my grandma was like that and she would bake all kinds of cookies. And every time you go to Grandma's house, she feeds you until you're stuffed. And it doesn't, if you see her the next day, she'll still say, oh, you're not eating enough. Let me, let me help feed you. And this is... This is a way to show love. And this is the way that God loves you. He says, I love you. Here, have some more word. Have some more Lord's Supper. Have some more fellow Christians. Have some more prayer. Have some more love. You got a little bit of oil missing. Let me top that off. I love you so much. I'll see you again in an hour. This is how much God loves us constantly. He wants to fill up our oil. He wants to fill up our faith. This is why why we meet together regularly. This is why we have communion regularly. This is why hopefully at home you're reading the Bible regularly. You're praying regularly. These gifts are given to fill up your faith. If you've neglected these things, then repent and know that the Savior that died to forgive your sins continues to love you. He continues to give you blessings every day. You are free then to receive these gifts with joy, not despising them because you've received it before. Oh, Grandma's baked cookies again. Oh, I had Grandma's cookies before. I guess I don't want any more. That never happens. Yeah, I'll take a plate to go. You're free to receive, receive these gifts with joy. Even if, you don't feel, even if you don't feel hungry, well, I'm not that spiritually exhausted yet. I don't need to go to church. No, come to church. I'm not that hungry, Grandma. I don't need to. Well, sure, one cookie won't harm. You're free to receive these with joy, not despising them because you've received them before or because you don't feel empty, spiritually empty, but rejoicing because God continues to bring them to you in love. The reason your grandma keeps shoving plates of cookies in your face is because, in your face is because she loves you. And even if you don't feel hungry, it's good to be loved that way. And God loves you all the more. And now that peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.